Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We recently got an email from listener Becky who included some episode suggestions. And one of those suggestions really caught my eye. It was... The Muffin Man, on whom the nursery rhyme is based, and actually my nine-year-old grandson thinks nursery rhymes would make a perfect Impossible episode series. And I thought, you know what, Becky's grandson, you were correct. (laughs) (laughs) That is a perfect Impossible episode series, and it's been more than six months since we have done a six Impossible episodes. Um, If you're new to the show... That's when we round up together six things that, you know, maybe have something in common, maybe don't, but for one reason or another, they can't really each be their own episode. So, you know, it's it's time for one of those. We're going to talk about nursery rhymes. And just to level set, we are focused on English language poems for young children here, the ones that are generally lumped together as mother goose, although there are similar poems in other languages. Like, that's a little outside our scope today. Right. And before we get to the Muffin Man, we have to ask the more general question, who was this Mother Goose? Anyway, uh, in the U.S. in particular, she is associated with short, often nonsensical rhymes for young children, many of which purportedly have hidden historical meanings. But where did that connection come from? So one very widely spread but untrue version of this is that Mother Goose was from Boston, Massachusetts. There is a gravestone at the Granary Burying Ground that has become known as Mother Goose's Grave. It is the gravestone of Mary Goose, who was the first wife of Isaac Goose. He may have actually been known by the last name Vergoose or Vertigoose also. And Mary Goose died in 1690 at the age of 42. Just going to tell you now, I'm putting the name Vertigoose on my list of possible future pet names. It's so good. Seems good, good, yeah. Uh, A lot of the debunking of this whole idea focuses on this gravestone and how Mary Goose was definitely not Mother Goose. But some of those debunkers go on to say that Mother Goose was really Isaac's second wife, Elizabeth Foster Goose. Isaac and Mary had ten children together before she died, and then Isaac and Elizabeth had six more. According to the lore, Elizabeth entertained all of those kids. That's 16 if you were doing the math. And then their kids with all kinds of stories and songs and rhymes, which were published as a book in 1719. But that is not true either. And getting to the bottom of that took me down an enormous and convoluted rabbit hole, which now everyone listening to the show (laughs) gets to go along with also. The first place that I found this whole story, beyond just a couple of sentence recap that basically went, here's the story, it's not true, was in the only true Mother Goose melodies without addition or abridgment, embracing also a relatable life of the Goose family never before published. This book was published by Monroe and Francis of Boston, and the title page has this statement down at the bottom, quote, entered according to Act of Congress in the year 1833 by Monroe and Francis in the clerk's office of the District Court of Massachusetts. There are lots of copies of this book in the collections of various libraries, and there are multiple scans of it online, and they generally list its publication year as 1883. 
but its relatable life of the Goose family was not never before published, as claimed. It was reprinted from the Boston Evening Transcript, which ran it under the headline, Cotton Mather and Mother Goose, and the byline, Requiescat. This piece starts by mentioning that transcript correspondent NBS, that's initials, had recently confirmed the birthplace of Cotton Mather. And then it just makes this hard turn onto the topic of the Goose family and Mother Goose. Here's a quote. Quote, the first book of the kind known to be printed in this country bears the title of Songs for the Nursery or Mother Goose's Melodies for Children, something probably intended to represent a goose with a very long neck and mouth wide open, covered a large part of the title page, at the bottom of which printed by T. Fleet at his printing house, Pudding Lane, 1719, price two coppers. Several pages were missing so that the whole number could not be ascertained. It goes on to talk about Thomas Fleet fleeing England following the riots that broke out after the trial of controversial clergyman Henry Sacheverell. And then it circles back to what any of this has to do with Cotton Mather. Mather officiated the marriage of Thomas Fleet to Elizabeth Goose, oldest daughter of Isaac and Elizabeth. This piece concludes, quote, Cotton Mather and Mother Goose thus stand in juxtaposition. And as the former was instrumental in cementing the union, which resulted in placing the latter so conspicuously before the world, it is but just that it should be so. Although the one was a learned man, a most voluminous writer, and published a great many books, some wise and some foolish, it may well be doubted whether anyone or all of them together have passed through so many editions, been read by so many hundreds of thousands, not to say millions, put so many persons to sleep, or in general done so much good to the world as the simple melodies of the other. This whole thing is a little weird. It's purportedly about the Goose family and Mother Goose, but there is also this kind of strained connection to Puritan minister Cotton Mather. It insults Elizabeth Goose, saying that her singing was, quote, greatly to the annoyance of the whole neighborhood, to Fleet in particular, who was a man fond of quiet. And it insults Cotton Mather, suggesting that he was less influential than Mother Goose, who, as the writer had already established, was annoying. By extension, it insults NBS. That's genealogist, historian, and future mayor of Boston, Nathaniel Bradstreet Shirtliff, for bothering to care about where Cotton Mather was born in the first place. To make it weirder. This piece does not seem to have existed in 1833 when the book that it was in was supposedly published. It was printed in the Boston Transcript on January 14, 1860. We've talked on the show before about old newspapers reprinting work without acknowledging what they were doing, but it really doesn't seem like that's what happened here. Or if it did, it was not reprinting something from nearly as far back as 1833. Because at that point, Nathaniel Bradstreet Shirtliff was only 23 years old and was in medical school. He graduated in 1834, and his first printed work came out at about that same time, but it was not about Cotton Mather's birthplace at all. It was an epitome of phrenology. He did not start out publishing work on history and genealogy until much later, possibly as late as 1849. In 1909, someone started trying to figure out who wrote this Boston transcript piece, which by that point had been reprinted in a lot of Mother Goose books. 
They sent a query to the transcripts, notes, and queries section, which ran on April 10th of that year. And that read, quote, in the reproduction by Lee and Shepard, August 1905, of the Monroe and Francis 1833 edition of Mother Goose Melodies, is an eight-page note, History of the Goose Family, copied from the transcript, marked Copyright Secured, and signed Requiescat. Is it permissible at this later date to say who Requiescat was? The answer was printed the following Saturday, April 17th. Quote, It has been handed down at the transcript office that Lind M. Walter, the editor of the transcript from 1830 to 1842, wrote an Addisonian-style communication from himself to himself to be printed in the paper of which he was the editor, and that Requiescat was his signature he sometimes used. It is presumable that the inquiry may refer to the use of the same signature of a later year than 1842. We don't really know whether the transcript was being intentionally cagey or if they didn't track down the Cotton Mather and Mother Goose piece in their own archives to see what this letter writing was asking about. In 1909, that truly might have been an undertaking, especially if they were focused on the completely wrong year of 1833. But the reason Walter stopped editing the paper in 1842 is that he died, so he's definitely not Requiescat in this case. It may have been a New York Times reporter who sent this query because the Times weighed in on all this a week later, noting that Thomas Fleet's great-grandson, John Fleet Elliott, had revived this story about his ancestor around 1860, and that the only evidence for a 1719 Mother Goose book was Elliott's statements and this Boston transcript piece. It's possible that Requiescat was John Fleet Elliott. Some sources just say this definitively, although they don't really explain how they came to that conclusion in the words of the New York Times, quote, evidently this is a Boston joke. But there are other more serious interpretations as well. In a Twitter thread in 2019, historian Caitlin G. DeAngelis made the argument that just before the Civil War, Eliot made up this story to minimize both the greater history of slavery in Massachusetts and his own family's connection to it. Thomas Fleet had an enslaved workforce at his home and at the printing shop where the 1719 edition was supposedly printed. Of course, none of this is mentioned in Eliot's story. Eliot claimed that this had been part of his family's lore for years, and that in 1856, he had been talking to some friends about it in the offices of the Massachusetts Hospital Life Insurance Company, he said that Edward A. Crowninshield had overheard this conversation and came over to say he had seen a copy of this 1719 book in the collections of the American Antiquarian Society. But Crowninshield died in 1859, so when this story started to spread after 1860, he was not around to confirm it. Sort of convenient. Uh-huh. Uh, as we said earlier, this story was reprinted in a lot of Mother Goose collections and in other publications after 1860. And it has stuck around in spite of decades of attempts to debunk it. In 1888, after almost 30 years of being pestered about it, the American Antiquarian Society printed a clear and annoyed-sounding denial in its report of the librarian, stating unequivocally that it had no 1719 Mother Goose in its collections and never had. 
This report states that the earliest mother goose in the Society's collection was one printed by Isaiah Thomas in 1786 or 1787. That date is unclear because the first 12 pages of that book are missing. It is possible that that is the work Crown and Shield saw and told Elliot about. Or it's possible that Elliot fabricated some impossible-to-disprove backup about a conversation with the late Crown and Shield when he was pressed for details later on. The general conclusion at this point is that the supposed 1719 Mother Goose collection printed by Thomas Fleet simply did not exist. Among other things, in the words of the preface to a later, completely different Mother Goose collection, there's this explanation, which I dearly love, quote, If there had been an edition printed in Boston in 1719, we can safely say that Benjamin Franklin would have had a copy. Not only was there no such book in Franklin's collections, Franklin apparently made no reference to Mother Goose of any type in any of the written work that he left behind. On top of all of this, the name Mother Goose has existed since at least the 1620s in France. The first use of Mother Goose in writings was in Charles Perrault's collection of fairy tales, which was printed in 1697. And that had the subtitle, Les Contes de ma Mère Loi, or Tales of My Mother Goose. This book was translated into English in 1729. Yeah, those were stories that we would probably call fairy tales rather than nursery rhymes, things like Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Uh, But by the mid-1700s, John Newbery had published Mother Goose's Melody, or Sonnets for the Cradle. And that is when the name Mother Goose really started becoming so clearly associated with nursery rhymes. The term nursery rhyme was first used in writing in the book Nursery Rhymes from the Royal Collection, and that was published for the Royal Museum in 1820. And if you're still wondering about that 1833 publication date that sparked a lot of confusion during this research, Monroe and Francis printed a lot of Mother Goose editions, starting in the 1820s and going right up until 1845, with various material added or changed around from one edition to the next. Many of the poems had previously been printed by Isaiah Thomas in 1785, and that edition was mostly the same as John Newberry's 1765 volume. But the Monroe and Francis collection was really the first collection of Mother Goose rhymes to be distributed outside of a publisher's local area, and it probably had as much to do with the connection between Mother Goose and nursery rhymes as John Newberry's earlier work. After 1833, a lot of these different printings have the exact same copyright statement that we read back at the beginning of the show, regardless of when they were actually published. And some of these are a little weird. As one example, one of the versions that I found as I was trying to track down what was going on with all this was Mother Goose's Melodies, the only pure edition containing all that has ever come to light of her memorable writings, together with those which have been discovered among the manuscripts of Herculaneum. Likewise, every one recently found in the same stone box which hold the golden plates of the Book of Mormon. The whole compared, revised, and sanctioned by one of the annotators of the Goose family. In theory, all these others, like all these others, this was probably published in 1833. That might actually be the case because it seems to be like a jab at the the Latter-day Saints 
roughly three years after the Book of Mormon was first published. So after we take a quick sponsor break, we're going to talk about some famous rhymes and their possibly historical interpretations. So we're now, after that first impossible episode of who in the world Mother Goose was, uh, we are going to start the next impossible thing in the series with that listener request on the Muffin Man. But before we do, we need another level set. Uh, According to the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes, more than 40% of the rhymes that were printed in that dictionary were written down by the end of the 1700s. But many of them were possibly passed along orally before being written down. So it's really possible that the vast majority of nursery rhymes that still exist in English today, that a lot of us know off the top of our heads, are more than 300 years old. And even though many of these poems are hundreds of years old, they weren't really the subject of much academic study until more recently. And that happened in tandem with a rise in scholarly research into folklore that happened in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's really during this wave of research that people started writing about hidden meanings in nursery rhymes, drawing from the poem's language and imagery. A big contributor to this field was Catherine Elwes Thomas, who published The Real Personages of Mother Goose in 1930. But many scholars dismiss these kinds of conclusions out of hand as Yahimerism. Yahimerus lived around 300 BCE and wrote a utopian work in which the Greek gods were really mortal people who were worshipped after their deaths because they had just really incredible accomplishments in their lives. So Yahimerism is the interpretation of myths as though they document actual real historical people, or in this case, interpreting nursery rhymes as though they depict actual historical events. In other words, sometimes this really seems like more of an interpretation of a poem than an actual documented connection to a real historical person. Yeah, I kind of chalk this up to pattern recognition, right? Where it's like, this this is very similar to this thing that happened historically, but there's (laughs) there's no real evidentiary link. Yeah. So with that caveat, we're going to move right into the Muffin Man. Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? I'm not going to sing it. Do you know the Muffin Man (laughs) who lives on Drury Lane? Yes, I know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Yes, I know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane. According to The Singing Game by folklorists Iona and Peter Opie, also known as the Opies, the oldest known copy of this rhyme is in the collection of the Bodleian Library, and it dates back to 1820. Its phrasing is slightly different, though. It's don't you know rather than do you know the Muffin Man. Even though neither of us is going to sing on this episode, this rhyme seems to have started out as a singing game with people standing in a circle and one person would sing the do you know part to the person standing on one side of them, and that person would answer yes, I know, back at them before turning to the person on their other side and starting it over again. Like a game of telephone, sort of, but repeating these same two verses over and over for as long as people could not fall over themselves laughing, I think. (laughs) Which might not take very long because this is very silly. 
In early versions of this song, the Muffin Man actually lived on Crumpet Lane instead of Drury Lane, with crumpets and muffins both being baked goods, and Drury Lane being an actual real street in London. Uh, I would like to visit Crumpet Lane. Uh, It is possible that the query that started this whole episode stemmed actually from a TikTok video about the Muffin Man that started circulating in January of 2021, claiming that this song was meant to warn children about a real serial killer named Frederick Thomas Linwood, who killed 15 children and seven rival pastry chefs in the 16th century. And he was purportedly known as the Drury Lane Dicer. However... This information seems to have come from a website called Uncyclopedia, the content-free encyclopedia. As of April 9th, 2021, which is when I did this research, the Uncyclopedia entry for The Muffin Man starts with a quote that is attributed to Oscar Wilde, who supposedly said, quote, his muffins suck, his pastry sucks, he sucks. he He didn't say that. There's also a photo that is supposedly of Linwood that is credited as being taken by witchcraft. Uh, This website does not document real information. And the TikTok video that went really viral did not really make that clear. I like photographs taken by witchcraft. Um, I mean, it seems totally legitimate to me. Right? This is really probably just a silly song about baked goods possibly alluding to a real baker who lived in the vicinity of Covent Garden in London. No evidence there was any serial killer involved. Definitely not. And now we're going to move on to Ring Around the Rosie. And while this is probably the most well-known nursery rhyme backstory, it also seemed like we would get a lot of questions about why we did not talk about it if we did not talk about it. A lot of folks in the U.S. learn this rhyme as ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Oh, the memories I have of singing this song as a child. Oh, yeah. But in most academic work and in other parts of the world, the lyrics to this song go more like ring a ring o' roses, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Like the Muffin Man, this one is often sung with children holding hands and moving in a circle and dramatically falling down at the end, which frankly was always the best. Yes. Sometimes there is one child, presumably the Rosie that it references, in the middle of the circle. So there's a pretty persistent idea that this rhyme is about the Great Plague of London or maybe the Black Death or some earlier major outbreak of the plague. The Ring of Roses is purportedly a rash that was the first symptom of illness, and the posies are flowers and herbs that people carried to protect themselves from bad air. The ashes, ashes is about the ashes of burned bodies, or if you're doing the a tissue version, that's a reference to sneezing, which was supposedly like your end-stage bubonic plague involved sneezing for some reason. And then we all fall down because we have died. (laughs) Yeah, we should point out, too, that that a tissue is not tissue like a piece of tissue, but it's meant to be like a phonetic of what it sounds like when you sneeze. Yeah, like an onomatopoeia for sneezing. Yeah, it's A-T-I-S-H-O-O, like achoo. But the plague did not cause a rosy rash or sneezing, and no references connecting this song to the plague exist until the mid-20th century. According to Snopes, the first instance was in James Lesor's The Plague and the Fire, and that came out in 1961. 
Meanwhile, the earliest versions of the rhyme itself date back to England in the 1880s. That's more than 200 years after the Great Plague of London and 500 years after the Black Death. That's a long time to go between when the thing happened and uh, when this appeared in writing for the first time. These early versions also vary a lot once you get past the ring a ring a roses a pocket full of posies part. There are lines in different versions about everything from Moses to fairy crowns to girls named Josie. There's an 1883 version from the U.S. that starts Ring Around the Rosie. <laughs> then the next line is Squat Among the Posies. With Josie. <laughs> <laughs> By the late 1800s, there were dozens of versions of this poem in circulation, many of them, as Tracy just pointed out, wildly different from one another, none of which seem to have anything at all in common with the plague. And there are also 19th century poems from other parts of Europe, including Italy, Germany, France, and Switzerland, that start out very similarly to Ring a Ring a Roses, but then they go into totally different and, again, very non-plague-related directions. So the most commonly accepted interpretations of this poem are a little more vague, but it's just kind of a reference to springtime festivals that involved dancing in circles, or maybe folklore that was connected to things like flowers or fairy rings. The mischievous part of me wants to write a very serious-seeming analysis of this, where it's actually about uh, pressing your own liqueur using flower petals and then you're so drunk you fall down. Yeah, I mean that. (laughs) (laughs) And putting it forth like real historical research. (laughs) Yeah, this uh, this one in particular reminds me of tweets that I see from time to time that say, I was today years old when I found out, blah. And it's a thing that person observed and they made a connection about something. And it's like, but that's not, that's not real, actually. Arby's, was not coined for RB standing for roast beef. <laughs> it it was the brothers that founded the restaurant chain. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a thing that you saw that seemed like the logical explanation, but is not the correct one. Right. So moving on, we mentioned The Real Personages of Mother Goose by Catherine Elwes Thomas earlier. Neither of those last two nursery rhyme interpretations have anything to do with her work, and it would be a real disservice to leave anybody with the impression that they did. Thomas's work is extensively researched and footnoted, with cross-references between oldest known copies of nursery rhymes and actual primary source documents. She did a really good job. So it is neither made up like the Muffin Man story, nor based on any vague ideas about the plague, as is the case with Ring Around the Rosie. At the same time, there are other scholars of folklore, history, and literature who find her work and other similar work to be speculative at best. Yeah, there's a there's a lot. I mean, the, the word Bodleian appears in that book like hundreds of times. It references to documents that are in that library and the first appearances of poems ever in writing and, uh, and all of that. But still, sometimes it's like, okay, but it's not 100% clear how you got from point A to point B in in this very well-documented series of connections. So, chapter three of her book, The Real Personages of Mother Goose, is about Little Jack Horner. And that's the poem that goes, Little Jack Horner sat in a corner, eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a brave boy am I? 
Uh, Some versions, including the one that I learned as a child, end on what a good boy rather than brave boy. And according to Thomas, Jack Horner was Thomas Horner, steward to Abbot Whiting of Glastonbury. And during the dissolution of the monasteries, the abbot tasked him with carrying a dozen deeds to King Henry VIII. These deeds represented land that the church was ceding to the crown in order to appease the king. Because travel was not particularly safe, the 12 deeds were concealed, according to the poem, in a pie. Along the way, Horner, whether accidentally or on purpose, reached in and pulled out the deed to the estate of Mel's Park, which became home to the Horner family for the next five centuries. The abbot, who had sent him on this errand, was later drawn through the town on a hurdle and executed. And although the accounts of the day don't say that it was because there was a deed missing in the king's delivery, Thomas makes that connection. And she also connects the idea of the Christmas pie to a letter from Richard Pollard to Thomas Cromwell, Earl of Essex, and Vicar of General Church Affairs under Henry VIII, detailing the execution before saying, quote, I suppose it will be near Christmas before I shall have surveyed the lands of Glastonbury. This story about Jack Horner has been around for a while. It shows up in Notes and Queries in the 1880s. And there are early versions of the poem with pretty similar words dating back at least 100 years earlier than that. That is still much later than the dissolution of the monasteries, which took place from 1536 to 1541. But Thomas also draws in much older poems that reference plums and December and treason in some way as a sort of bridge. Thomas also maintains that this is the house that Jack built, Jack be nimble, and Jack the Giant Killer may all be about this same man. To me, it's equally probable that Jack was a very common right. name and a very common <laughs> nickname used for just about everybody. At the same time, there's also another poem called Namby Pamby, a panegyric on the new versification addressed to A.P. Esquire. This was written by Henry Carey in the 1720s, and it contains a really similar passage to this nursery rhyme that starts, now he sings of Jackie Horner sitting in the chimney corner. Namby Pamby was a satire of the work of Ambrose Phillips, doesn't seem to have a huge connection to the dissolution of the monasteries, and the Horner family, for their part, has maintained that the family legally purchased this property in 1543. They did not steal it from the king. There's historical documentation to back that part up. Also, they've pointed out that their ancestor, Thomas, was not known as Jack, and that he took the pie, being that delivery, he took that to Henry VIII intact. They sort of regard this whole idea that this poem is about their ancestor being basically a slander onto their family. Ah, okay, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and get some Rockabye Baby Time in. Moving on, I picked the two other rhymes that we're going to talk about in this episode because their possible backstories are topics we have covered before on the show. And first up is Rockabye Baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bell breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. Uh, in some versions, it starts out hushabye instead of rockabye. 
This poem has been around since at least 1765, and it's one of the ones that often comes up as an example when people talk about how scary and weird and violent nursery rhymes can be. People sing this as a lullaby, but it is about a baby falling out of a tree. So a popular interpretation of this rhyme is that it is about James Francis Edward Stewart, son of King James VII of Scotland and II of England, who was born on June 10th, 1688. King James was Catholic, and when James Francis was born, that meant that the Catholic king now had an heir, and that was much to the disappointment of Protestants who wanted a Protestant monarch. This led to a whole conspiracy theory that the younger James was not the king's son at all, but was an imposter who had been sneaked into the bed of James's wife, Mary of Modena, in a warming pan. We covered this in our episode on the Jacobite Uprising of 1745. So in this interpretation, the cradle on the treetop is that warming pan that was concealing the old pretender James Francis Edward Stuart, and that the cradle and all fall at the end of it is the fall of the House of Stuart after the Glorious Revolution. But there's just really not a lot to connect to the point A to point B here, as I've sort of referenced earlier. Catherine Elwes Thomas notes that a longer poem that was printed in Poems and Songs of the Bodleian Library, titled Father Peter's Policy Discovered or the Prince of Wales Proved a Popish Perkin, which was first published in 1689, she, uh, she notes the similarities in these two things. And a big similarity is that each stanza of that 1689 poem ends with Sing Lullaby Baby Bye Bye Bye. But honestly, that seems like a pretty tenuous connection to a different poem that first appeared in print a hundred years later. (laughs) Right. It's like, well, there are syllables that are the same. (laughs) (laughs) Other proposed interpretations involve real babies in trees. There's the Kenny family who worked as charcoal burners and lived in and around a yew tree in Derbyshire in the 18th century. And the Kennys purportedly used a hollowed-out tree bough as a cradle. Another conjecture, again without evidence, is that this poem really has its origins in North America rather than the UK, and that it's based on indigenous peoples using cradle boards. Since the poem first appeared in print in England, that would mean someone had either returned to England after traveling to North America, or someone in North America had written to someone in England about this practice. Yeah, so again, all of this is really speculative. And to move on to our last Mother Goose rhyme for today, there's Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. I also learned this with slightly different words when I was a kid because it started Mary Mary rather than Mistress Mary, and it said little maids instead of pretty maids. Um, No, I also learned it Mary Mary, but I... I have a vague recollection of one side of my family using little and one side using pretty. Okay. And maybe there being a pretty serious discussion with a cousin about the whole situation. (laughs) Oh, wow, yeah. (laughs) Because these are very important matters when you're like nine. Um, (laughs) One of the popular interpretations of this poem is that it's about Mary, Queen of Scots, and that the maids all in a row are her four ladies-in-waiting. That's Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Fleming, and Mary Livingston, who accompanied her when she left for the court of France in 1548. 
She was going to the home of her fiancé, Francis Dauphin of France, when both Mary and Francis were still young children. And in this interpretation, the bells and shells are described either as ornaments and gifts she was given, or in the case of cockles, a food that she was likely to eat. Yeah, we've, we've talked about uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, in a, a lot of previous episodes of the show. Uh, there's also an interpretation that this is about a different Mary, that it is Mary Tudor, also known as Mary I of England, who was also nicknamed Bloody Mary. And in this interpretation, the silver bells and the cockle shells are really references to torture devices and not jewelry and ornaments and tasty food. In the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes, the Opies note that this poem's first known appearance in writing dates back to Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook, which was published around 1744. That makes it about 200 years after both Mary Tudor and Mary Queen of Scots lived. And that first appearance doesn't end with little maids all in a row. It's, and so my garden grows. The Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes entry for this one actually starts off with the idea that it might be a word picture of a convent. Uh, in a sentence that really could apply to pretty much everything we've talked about today, uh, the Opies describe those other possible explanations as, quote, such assertions are, of course, the work of the happy guessers. Who doesn't want to be a happy guesser? Uh, Tracy, I'm so glad you did this one. And I know uh, you've said that, you know, we may do another one of these someday because they're fun. And, yeah. and you have already done the legwork on figuring out that whole who is Mother Goose tangle. <laughs> and we, we won't have to do that again. <laughs> I'll talk about that some more uh, in our behind the scenes. Um, I enjoy uh, sometimes when I find something that's just a tangle to try to figure out how to, how to explain it or what really happened. Um, this one was inordinately tangled and I spent way more time on it than I was expecting. Um, so we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that when we do our, our behind the scenes. Do you also have a little bit of listener mail? I do, and it also was about a poem, coincidentally. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, this came from Alicia. And Alicia says, Hi, ladies. I was listening to your January 27th episode about Andrew Cross and was shocked to hear you say the word hobblogy. It's a word I learned as a child in a poem taught to me by my grandmother. But I have never met anyone outside my family who'd ever heard it. It's one of those knee-bouncing rhymes. Incidentally, she said it hobblogy. I think I might have said it hobblegy in the episode. I don't remember. Me either. Uh, my earliest memory of Grandma is her bouncing me on her knee while reciting the rhyme. It goes like this. Ladies go to market, trit, trit, trit. The gentlemen come after them, trot, trot, trot. Then come the country clowns bringing taters to the town, Hobblogy, hobblogy, hobble, hobble, hobblogy. My best guess is that this was passed down through her mother's family who came from England in 1877 as I found a very similar version in a book about nursery rhymes from Wales across the river from Andrew Cross's ancestral home. Anyway, I loved that connection and it brought back fond memories of my grandma. And while I'm writing, because I know you both love pet pictures, I'd love to introduce you to my cat Herschel, named for Caroline Herschel, whom I learned about from your podcast. The joke I like to tell is that he's named for Caroline Herschel, who discovered the planet Uranus with her brother, who I leave unnamed. It's a cheeky pushback against all the women whose contributions in history have been downplayed or forgotten, while the credit 
has been given to their male partners. No one gets that, though, and the jokes are never funny after being explained, so I'm the only one who laughs, or maybe it's not even that funny sigh. Um, And then we got a cat picture. So good. Look at this. Kitties, kitties. That cat has the sweetest face. Yeah. Uh, And a little patch of fur that, if you're not looking closely, almost looks like a bow on this um, (laughs) printout. Thanks for your wonderful podcast. I can't recommend it enough to everyone I talk to. Your well-researched and balanced look at complex people and situations have been refreshing. Laughing all by myself over here, Alicia. Uh, And then Alicia goes on to say that I especially enjoyed your episode about the Lost Cause myth. Thank you so much. I had never heard that poem before, but boy, do I like the part about bringing the taters to town. (laughs) I do love potatoes. Uh, If you would like to send us an email about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app and uh, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.